Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 391. We are in the early stages of the month of Adar Rishen, being that this is a leap year. So we have two months of Adar, a double Simcha, double of a regular year. So special time to celebrate joy and joy that includes one that comes from even the darkest places, which is essentially the month of other, Vinapach, who that it was transformed from a very challenging and dark day that it could have been to a tremendous day like So that's a good way to begin, that it should be a month of only Simchas. Begali, joyous and celebrating occasions in a revealed way, leading us to the Gu'ula, Amitiz, Vashlema, when there'll be Simchas Elam Al Resham, a permanent Simcha and joy that will continue to grow from strength to strength. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yamin ben Menuchelena and Miriam Baschai Sara Altois, and Yukusil ben Leia Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash. Dedicated by Pinchas Todders ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altois. So, as I just mentioned, other, we're going to talk about that month, this month, and its power, but we'll also discuss this week's chapter. Always good to begin with the lessons and chsidis applied to the chapter of Tetzave. So, as we work our way through the book of Exodus, the book of Shemois, so we covered. The beginning of it was the Jews' suffering and their Gaulish exile in Egypt, the Egyptian exile, then the exodus, then the parting of the sea, leading to Matan Teda and Parsha Yisrael, um, but the, receiving the mandate of the Teda from God, leading into Mishpatim, more laws that were received at Sinai, and then leading to the building of the sanctuary. And that is the central theme which 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 is the occupies the, the coming chapters Truma Tetzave Kisisa Vayakel and Pekude until the end of this book of Shmois. So we're now in the second chapter about the Mishkan. So it continues about different elements connected to building the Mishkan, especially regarding the garments of the Kohanim and other aspects, including the Keteris, which is the incense offerings. This chapter as well, at the end, talks about Yom Kippur. So we have the continuing themes regarding the building of the Mishkan and the activities that went on there. So it's interesting, just as beginning as a general lesson, what do we learn from Atta Tetzava? So it's interesting that this chapter, in contrast to the previous one, talked about the actual building of the structure and its kalim, starting with the Arun, which is the Ark, the Tabernacle, and then the Shulchan, the menorah, the mizbeach, the, the table, the candelabra, the menorah, is also the mizbeach of the karbonus, the outer mizbeach. So, in that context, then when we follow in the next chapter, you see here the discussion is begins more on the more, uh, I would say, I don't say sublime elements, because the Arden is quite sublime, but it begins with the ner tamid, that may be made from pure olive oil and that it should burn continuously. And then it continues about the kahanim that served in this mishkan, especially the garments. The garments, even though on one hand a garment seems to be an external, but but the external of this world has to also express the internal, and that's why it was such an emphasis that the garments also be completely saturated with something that is respect and dignity. So yes, garments alone on their own are just garments. But when one dresses in, in a uh, dignified manner, this is why big day Shabbos and holidays, when Shabbos we dress a special way, because the dress reflects our, our internal neshama dika connection. So that's why there was so much emphasis on that. Now it's interesting also that this week's chapter begins with the word tetzave. Tetzave means to command, tetzave command, but Tetzav also comes from the word to, to bind. And that is why the Maimur Tetzav that the Rebbe, the last Maimur the Rebbe handed out before Chavzai Nader 30 years ago, was the Maimur of Atat Tetzav, talks about his kashus to Moshe Rabbeinu. So though on one hand, his name, Moshe's name is not mentioned in this parsha, 
to, to symbolize, because Zion Adar, and we honor Zion Adar actually in the first Adar, the Gemara tells us, the Zion Adar in the first Adar, so, we, so, so to hint to that, because Zion Adar always comes out approximately this period of time, so Moshe's main name is not mentioned. But he's mentioned Va'ata, in a, in a Va'ata you. So Chassidus explains that Va'ata refers to the etzim of Moshe. A name is already some form of expression, some form of definition. Va'ata is the etzim of Moshe, which is what we connect to, even though Moshe was his talkus, and Moshe's at this and Zion other passed away. But the connection always remains eternal because you always remain connected with your Rebbe. And that's Va'ata Tetzat. Not just to command, but to bind and connect. So in some ways you can say that this week's chapter, in addition to obviously we connect to godliness and we connect through the Mishkan in general, through the sanctuary, and through the Arun and the, all, the, all the vessels that we built and were discussed in the previous chapter, but when you talk about the actual connection to the Nosi Hadar, to the Moshe Shabbat, which is also through the Kehanim, who also serve as that type of interface, so here you're talking about now on a deeper level, so it makes sense that the, 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 uh, the, that the parts of the Mishkan that were built and structured in this week's chapter also talk about the more personal connection. So the lesson to us is, the lesson to us is that we, that we connect obviously with build for me a sanctuary and I will reside among you, I will reside well within you, within you, but one of the ways we do that is through the tzaddik hadar, through the Moshe Rabbein of a generation, a leader of a generation, not, God forbid, replaces that. Because in Judaism there's no intermediaries, but it says, it's a it's a transparent and seamless channel because we can be so involved in our mundane lives that we need a living example of how we can connect to God. So it's all about one relationship with Eibishter. But a true Rebbe and a true Tzaddik, Moshe Rabbeinu, serves as that type of role. That's why Vaiminu Ba'ashem Ba'Moshe Avdeh. How do you equate the two, believing in God and Moshe Avdeh? Because Moshe is an, is an extension of godliness. Godliness. And when you look at Moshe, you have a, a, a model, an example, a prototype, if you wish, a template of what it means to be a godly person, Isha Lekim. So this week's chapter focuses in that aspect of it, that ultimately the Mishkan was the model that we use in order to connect to and allow godliness to dwell among us. Even today when we don't have an actual physical sanctuary, we do it in our, in our hearts, in our souls, in our homes, as we discussed last week. And a Rebbe, the Rebbe of a generation, there's this Pashtusa Demesha Bechol Dar in every generation there's the Va'ata Tetzava, the connection we make with the Rebbe that gives us the strength to go through, to get through the mundane realities of our life and connect to Hashem in this fashion. So the lesson is about Iskashus, and therefore also appropriate to mention that 30 years ago when the Rebbe delivered this Maimer Va'ata Tetzava, the Rebbe had distributed it to each person. It's a Maimer from Tov Mem Aleph, from the year 1981, but the Rebbe actually was, was the Rebbe edited it, and then it was uh, distributed on, the, the, on, on this week, which is like the last time the Rebbe would distribute a Maimer before the sad day, the Monday of Chav Zayinada, which we shall talk about when we get closer to that date. So that is a practical connection, a lesson to us. And how do we connect to the Rebbe? We connect through learning the Rebbe's Torah and through living and actualizing his directives, his heiros. So, with that said, let us talk about some of the questions that came in connection to this week's chapter. And we'll start with a general one. What rituals can we do today as a substitute for the rituals in the temple? Hello, Rabbi. From Montpelier, Vermont. We love your Sunday night Torah question show. We have a question. Since we don't have a physical holy temple in Jerusalem, what rituals can we do here in America as a substitute for the rituals they did in the temple? Well, not only in America, everywhere in the world, the temple is physically not here nowhere. And even though the Temple Mount is, and it's a holy Temple Mount in Israel, but we need something that, yes, and this I discussed last week, there are two key things. First of all, Yecheskel said, when he asked God, what will happen now to the Jewish people? They don't have the Beis HaMikdash. So the Hebrews just said, Ma'at. 
I will be for them. The ALM, this Beis HaKnes is Beis HaMedrash that they build. That they'll build synagogues and homes, houses of prayer and houses of study, houses of worship and houses of study. The ALM Migdash Ma'at, and that will serve for them a Migdash Ma'at, a mini sanctuary. And more specifically, says the Talmud, that davening, prayers, tefillahs, keneged karbonus tiknum, keneged tmidin tiknum. When we pray today, that is the replacement, akimasvosov. When we say, when we say that, uh, that when we speak through our mouths and we pray, that our lips are supplementing or, comp- or supplementing or filling, fulfilling that which the karbonas, the offerings did in the temple. So when we speak and our say our prayers, we're actually offering ourselves prayer as a form of an offering. And the same thing is with every other aspect of the temple. We have it today. When we study Torah, we're connecting through the Arden, through the tabernacle, through the, through the Ark, the Holy Ark. The Meneda reflects, the, the Meneda, the Mizbeach, and the Shulchan reflect Chesed, Gvura, Teferes. Chesed is the Shulchan. The Meneda is Gvura, and Teferes is the center, is the Mizbeach, that is the offering, the offering of the incense offerings. And all that is reflective in our work today when we do kindness is a form of the, the showbread of the shulchan, which was about being mamshak, being drawing down every pipe of blessing. The menorah is an illuminator and also represents fire, but it's also illuminating everything around us, being a walking menorah. And the same thing with the mizbeach, which, as I said, our offerings, the very fact that we are connected to, carbon comes from the word kiruv, closeness. Now, the entire books, there's a whole book called Teres Ela from the Ramah, Ramesha Ishalish who wrote the commentary, the mappa is called, like the cover of the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch is called the set table, the mappa, which is the, the tablecloth, is the Ramah. He wrote a book called Teda Se'ela, dedicated completely to explaining the parallels of the Mishkan in our personal lives. And in Chassidus, you'll find many places where it discusses it. So we say, Teda Aveda Gmilz Chasodim, Aveda, Zuit Fila. Aveda is like the karbonas, the offerings, which was one of the primary, the primary thing, according to the Rambam Maimonides, the primary work in the Mishkan, and that we do that through our prayers today. So, God would not deprive us, and as I said before, for us in the Migdash, the bottom line, we have to always remember, the temple was not for God to reside in the building, it was to reside within each one of us, each one of you, each person. Okay. More specific questions about some of the parsha mentioned. The parsha, what was the tzitz and the kohen gadol that the kohen gadol wore on his forehead? So it says in this week's parsha of Asisa tzitz, a tzitz essentially is a head band or a head um, plate, sometimes referred to, that the kohen gadol Aaron in this case, the first kohen gadol would wear on the forehead right over here. It was made out of gold and it had the words. Kodesh Hashem, holy to God. There's two opinions in the Gemara, whether it was two lines or one line. And this, the, the Pasuk says, should always be worn by Aaron, and it provided protection and atonement for the, for the offerings that were brought. And in general, atonement, nicer oven. So the reminder of God that's on the forehead that first of all Aaron wore, and everyone saw when they saw Aaron, was a force, was a power of atonement, atonement for forgiveness. So even though we don't have it sits today, but the avoid of it we do have, explained in Torah Eir from the Alter Rebbe, and the Tzamech Tzedek in more detail, in Eir Torah and Tetzaveh, the different aspects of this sits and why it's called sits, which also comes from the word gazing, which answers the second question, is there a connection between the tzitz of the Kohen Gadol and tzitzis we wear, because these words sound very similar. So there he makes the connection, that they have that connection. Tzitz also comes from metzitz, from gazing. Metzitz minachrochim, to gaze through the cracks of the wall, talking about Mashiach. So there it discusses this and just briefly, how the tzitz represents a divine presence. Obviously, every one of the big day kodesh, every one of the, the holy garments of the high priest, of all the priests, 
represent different things, but this represents particularly this element. As explained at length in these memoirs, where I would definitely advise you could check out and find more information. So, in that sense, the tzitz reminds us, like today we look at the tzitzes with the isem, when you see the tzitzes, it reminds us of Torah mitzvahs, reminds us of all the 613 mitzvahs. The tzitz was a reminder, but more than a reminder, it was a presence. It was a divine presence because it had actually the words God, the words of Kedush Lashem, that, that that was a reminder, and it drew down an energy, a particular energy. It was made out of pure gold, Zal, like he speaks in the verse, and it was on the forehead. The metzach in Torah generally represents, especially in Kabbalah, a deeper superconscious level. The forehead, which of course is the cover of the, of the mind that's inside it. But according to Kabbalah Chassidus, this represents a superconscious state. So it was drawing down from that superconscious state, and also compared to tefillin, because that's where we also wear the tefillin on the forehead as explained in these discourses. So that's the brief response to that. The lesson to us all is that a person has to always be reminded, especially not just their entire being, but also especially the mind, which is the forehead of the, of the, of the person's forehead, that you're always cognizant and aware of a higher presence, that, that holiness, that the sanctity is truly to God, that God is above and beyond us. But even our mind, even our intellect, which sometimes can reflect on our own, the, the unique superiority of the human race, always remembers about the superconscious of a reality that is higher than us. Okay. So that covers the pasture. Let's talk about other now, the month of other. Did the Rebbe once say that if we increase, that by incre- if we increase in Simcha by 60 times, meaning the two months of other, so 60 days, that all negativity will be bottled b'shishim. So there's an expression in halacha that says bottled b'shishim, that when something falls into, uh, let's say, a pot, a, uh, something, uh, meat, falls into a pot, is bottled b'shishim, meaning it becomes nullified because if there's 60 times as much as that piece, so shishim has the power to nullify other things. That's, it's, it's a particular number. So the Rebbe did say, indeed, in Tavshinun Beis, in this week's chapters, when the Rebbe spoke about the beginning of Adar, he said that month of Adar, because we have 60 days, it has the power to be mavatl, to eliminate and nullify all the dinim and gvuris, all judgments and severities. And so this is true in general, joy has that power. But especially 60, due to this fact that 60 has the power to nullify anything that so-called is encompassed within it. So the Rebbe did say it, and I see people are recently speaking about it, can you please elaborate on this concept and give a practical example of how we, how we can do it? Thank you. Well, let's first talk about joy itself. It says that simchas, joy has a power. It actually has a psychological power that affects us all. What is the power that affects us? You see, when a person is in a state of joy and celebration, in general, they're in a more transcendent place. They're more expansive, more lighthearted, more giving, more easier to get along with, just see, when a person is the opposite of joy, in a more depressed or more despondent state, so generally they're much more closed, more difficult, and so on. There's also the expression, specially made, famous in Kisamach Tesamach Tofresh Nun Zayin, classic discourse that the Rebbe Rashab delivered at his son, the Friedrich Rebbe's wedding, that it's simcha It pierces through boundaries. It's a breaks through. When a person is besimcha, suddenly they have an extra amount of strength. They dance, and in general have a surge. So all of us are going to deal in life with all kinds of challenging situations. When you, come, when you approach it with joy, which is so critical in serving God, to serve God with joy, that the prospect of joy, like the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 26 in Tanya, brings from the Arizal, the greatness when you do it, not just you do it, you do it with joy. In general, anything done with joy is done with a very different type of attitude, qualitatively and quantitative, but especially qualitatively. And you see it all the time. You see when a person celebrates the, the, a marriage of a child or a birth of a child or any special occasion, there's just that expansiveness. So joy is a force that we have within us. We're naturally born with natural simcha. Unfortunately, things happen in life 
And as a result of that, people begin that joy, that natural joy gets concealed. Look at children. They just have a natural exuberance, a natural happiness. We have to make sure not to let that light, that flame ever be diminished. It never gets extinguished, but it could appear that way. So comes Adar and says, here's strength, Mishanichnas Adar, Marben Besimcha, increase in joy. Now this doesn't mean pinching your cheeks till they turn red and it looks like your joy. It actually means digging deeper. Think about the things that give you Simcha. Everybody has blessings in their lives. Don't let the negatives over outweigh and overshadow the positives. That's on a very practical level. And when you do that, and there's enough of that, an abundance, it will cancel out and nullify the negative. This is true even if you do joy one day, let alone 60 days is what the Rebbe is saying, which means think of this next two months as a period. I'm going to do everything possible to be joyous. The truth is all year round it deserves to be, deserves to be that way. But especially these two months, you'll see if you go with that attitude, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to do a special exerted and concerted effort to be happier, to be more joyous, Either through, my, either through my contemplation on it or my actions with others, my behavior, my gratitude. Do things that bring joy and celebrate and focus on, appreciate. Don't take for granted your gifts. This itself elevates the person and elevates everything that you do. And check it out. You'll see. It's, it's a proven fact. The challenge is, some people say, how could I be joyous when things around me are not causing me to be happy? The answer is the other way around. If you were joyous, things around you would be happier. So really is control of your attitude. Is it always that easy? I understand. We all go through difficulties. That's why it's important to have friends. It's important to be with others. It's important to be involved in activities that bring joy. So even though initially you may not be in the mood, but do something that brings joy to another, automatically it will also bring joy to you. You discussed last week about growing in happiness and that in the month of Adar we have to grow we always increase in matters of holiness and therefore since this is a month where we're supposed to increase in joy we increase in that. How do you measure that you are actually advancing in happiness? Do you have a 60 day book on happiness or that's something else? Thanks. Okay, he's referring to the book I did. I wrote the called 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays, where I go through actually the two months of, of uh, Elul and Tishrei, and each day and how we prepare and how we experience the high holidays in a very personal way. So he's asking whether there's a 60 days on happiness. I will say, as an aside, that due to, this popular, to the popularity of that book and, and, and due to the great demand and need, we're going to be creating another book of 60 days on the next two months, Cheshvan and Kislev, and hopefully continue through the entire year. But regarding this, now I have not created a book of 60 days on happiness, even though it's an interesting uh, idea. Um, but I will say the following. Um, it's a good question, because you could say, okay, it's one thing being a happier person, but how do you measure and how do you grow in that? Well, if we actually made it a project, something that we feel that we're going to do based on the Rebbe's word, based on the, the, the Chazal's words, Mishanichnas Adar Marben Besimcha. Marben Besimcha. Not just joy, but Marben. Increase. And based on the principle, every day increasing. And based on the Rebbe's words, that 60 days will nullify any negative thing. Then the way to do it is, yes, maybe open up and maybe create a journal. And every day, write in your journal, what am I going to be doing the next day that to increase in joy. Because if you just make the decision in an abstract way, it most usually, it's not going to be very, it's not going to be concretized. So the question is how you actually can do that. I mentioned a few ideas. I think we put our heads together. I can mention a few others. You know, joy, bringing joy to others is always a very a secure and, and, and uh, a proven method of bringing joy to yourself. You see someone else smile. You see someone else that may have been a little despondent, you brought some simcha to them, some joy. A second thing is to contemplate on the blessings in your own life. A third thing, show gratitude. You say in the morning, ani. say it with a simcha, not just thank you for returning my soul, thank you for the gift of life. Contemplate on it. If you're a person with a family and children, there's so many ways that you can demonstrate it as well. Have your children 
You can create a project, a project that you can motivate, incentivize your children, your family. Let's do something together that's joyous. And let people come up with different ideas. The key is to make an effort. Remember, the neshama has natural joy because it's connected to God all the time. The problem is we may not be conscious of it. And we have to create that conscious connection. So we have to connect it by doing things, acting, speaking, thinking, that connect and draw out the natural joy that's within the neshama, within the soul. And then you'll be able to measure it. Now, the point here is not measuring. You don't need to report anyway, but it's always good to be accountable. Every day, every evening. And, uh, and that way you really can then say, hey, you know what? I've really increased in joy. And I guarantee you it becomes something that becomes like addictive in a good way. Something that is addictive and also contagious. All good. What does it mean? Because once you like it, once you're doing it, you'll see you like it, you'll want more of it. And I see no reason why it can't just continue into the month of Nisan, which is also a month of, revel- of uh, liberation and redemption, and throughout the entire year. Okay, since we're also on this week of Zion Adar, I mentioned before the birthday and the yard site of Moshe Rabbeinu, both on that day. So, of course, we have additional strength from the Moshe in each generation, and the Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, the Moshe Rabbeinu, if, of, of the time that took the Jews out of Mitzrayim, Goyal Rishin, who Goyal Achlin, the first redeemer, and he's connected with the final redeemer, Mashiach, the Moshe in each generation. So it's a week to connect, a week to connect to Moshe. One person asks, so we know the Gemara, the famous Gemara, in Megillah Daf Yud Gimel, that Haman threw lots, and it fell out in the month of Adar, and he was joyous, rejoiced, because he knew this was the month when Moshe passed away, so he felt it was a good omen for him, a bad one for the Jewish people. That's when their great leader passed away. So someone asks, how did Haman know that Moshe Rabbeinu died on the seventh of Adar? It's not probable that there were Persian newspapers that had obituary columns. If it turns out that Adar is a good luck month for us, because Moshe Rabbeinu was born on seventh of Adar, then why was it possible for a tragedy to happen and Moshe passed away in Adar? Okay, two questions. So actually, this is addressed by the Masha in the Gemara, on this sugya, and he actually cites a Gemara in uh, Kiddushin 38a. He says, because the calculation, when Moshe passed away, you can figure it out. You can figure it out from different verses. Firstly, in Sefer Dvarim. I don't think he brings Sefer, I think he brings Yeshua. But it talks about it. after Moshe passed, they counted a certain amount of days, so you can figure it out. And Haman, who is definitely a wise man, he figured out, he could calculate it. The birthday of Moshe was a Kabbalah, this they knew. But there's nowhere in the Torah that you can actually figure it out. As a matter of fact, the Yarish Dvosh, which I'll mention in a moment, shows that it's actually something that could only have been known by those that were insiders. And Homer may not have known that. Well, not may, he may have, he didn't know it. So the Yarish says, passing, we know, like also in Sefer Dvarim, it says, by, it says, which is the month of Chodesh Siri? Sorry, the tenth month, which is the month of of Shvat, the first day of Shvat. Moshe Rabbeinu began to teach, and the Bayis Atayra says Ela Advarim Shadibur Moshe, and that concluded thirty-seven days later. So though from that alone you can't calculate it. But when you look and say for Yeshua, you can calculate because it says that they mourned for Moshe several amount of days, and then you can calculate when he actually passed away, which is the Zion others. So Haman could have calculated. That's what the Masha says. The Yarish Dvos adds an interesting point. Yarish Dvos, she says, he says the following. When was Moshe, Moshe born? So everybody thought Moshe was usually, a pregnancy is nine months. But it says that they hid him for three months. Why? Because he was actually born six months and one day, into the seventh month. He was born pretty early. And, only, and no one knew that. The Mitzrayim didn't know it, so Haman wouldn't know that either. So Haman would have been mistaken and thought that maybe three months later is his birthday, based on that. So interesting different points. Relevant to us is the bottom line is, yes, he was born that day, and his, and his, his stalkus was on that day. And it says in the Gemara, but Tzadikim God actually makes it that they actually are born and pass away the same day. It's like a complete cycle. By the Rabbeim, the only one that were that way was the Mitla Rebbe. The Rebbe asked the question, if that's the case, how come so many Tzadikim are not, 
their Yorzeit is not the same day as their birthday. So Begoli revealed it by a few individuals. By everyone there's a certain element of completion. But my Moshe was in a revealed way. Moshe, the first Nasi, the first leader, was in a complete way. So even though this Talkus on one hand is a sad day, but being this was the complete cycle, remember Talkus is that the Alter Rebbe says, the day that gathers together. That gathers together everything that the tzaddik did and accomplished through his lifetime. So therefore, it's also the completion of his avodah. So although in that day it's sad, it ultimately is a special day. So both the birthday and the Yotzeit HaMoshe gives us only blessings. Haman only knew about the passing, didn't know about the birthday. But when you know both of them together, you have the complete blessings. And actually it turned out that it transformed other from sadness to joy, as we said earlier. Okay. Now that we covered the dates, the Pasha and other, let's discuss now some other questions. I have some follow-ups. There's plenty of different topics to talk about. You know, I want to just use this as an opportunity right now just to make a little housekeeping. So chassidusapply.com is the site where you can find all the previous archives of all the programs, 390 programs already that we've done. We've entered the ninth year. Who would believe? You also can find a, a forum there. Very easy to find where you can submit any question completely anonymously. And I will address all questions. My only, my only qualification is that there's so many, that there's so many questions coming in. I can't really keep up. So I'm not really sure how to resolve this. Maybe someone has a good idea. I mean, I could do another program. But still, there's just so many backup, but I'm trying to catch, catch up, trying to consolidate also always questions that are timely, matters that are happening that we need to address. So bottom line is, uh, as well, that you can find on that site, you can also find other resources on Samach Vav and Ayim Bez that I've been giving classes. I teach a daily class in Ayim Bez, which you're all welcome to. It's a live Zoom and YouTube every morning, 9.30 a.m. On Sundays, 10 a.m. Check it all out at chassidusapply.com. Okay. With that, let us now go to a bunch of questions. Some are follow-up. Okay. So let's begin with some timely things that happened the last week that people wrote about. I might as well address that because it's... Uh... How should we respond to claims that Holocaust was not racist? A television comedian... named Whoopi Goldberg sparked controversy this week by saying the Holocaust was not racist because Jews are a religion, not a race. But I want to ask you, what actually are we? Since we come from Avram, Abraham, and have a distinct heritage and lineage, we can technically be a race. But people from other groups can convert according to halacha and be considered fully Jewish, so that would make us a religion, not a race. Or perhaps are we both? And the answer is absolutely. We're both and much more than that. Remember, all these titles and terms are basically made up by human beings throughout history. We precede all these people, and we precede all these terms and labels. So, if you think about it, the truth is Jewish people, you can also define as God chose them. And that's defined in that, in that fashion. So, when we're talking about a, um, the concept of a Jew, it's both race and religion, as you accurately say, you know, there are people who are not technically observant and religious, but they're considered to be Jewish, and they're proud to be Jewish. So obviously, there's the religious part of it. You could also call it, is it an ethnic group? That's correct as well. But the fact is, Jews are not just also connected to a particular, even though we've lived in Israel and live in Israel, Jews live all over the world and have been all in all kinds of nations. And they can be also called American and French or Russian and so on. So I don't think you can find a way to just pigeonhole and define it and besides that's just a general answer regarding race and religion and so on but most importantly 
the statements made like this, besides the insensitivity, and I've heard that she's since apologized, is also, I mean, what are we trying to, what's your point you're trying to say? The, the Nazis, no question, saw the Jews as a race. They saw them as an inferior race. Yemach <clears throat> Shemam. And as such, this whole discussion is completely moot. Doesn't make a difference what it is. The bottom line is, so, so thank God, hopefully this was cleared up, but it's a good opportunity to just make that statement. How should we respond? Well, listen, there are people who are absolutely blatant anti-Semites and they find sake on, on, on all kinds of things. I'm not suggesting this actress is that. I don't know enough to be able to make that comment. So in general, to anti-Sem, how we deal with anti-Semitism is another discussion which I don't want to go into, but generally the best way possible is obviously wherever anybody does something anti-Semitic, definitely do it possible to protect ourselves and not allow anyone to discriminate or even hate speech or any of that, especially if it can be even worse than that, as we've seen. But in general, the Jewish approach, the Torah approach, as the Rebbe always says, the prouder we are as Jews, the better we demonstrate and declare our Judaism, which represents, of course, what God wants of all human beings in this world, goodness, kindness, virtue, that's the best way to fight. It's not through cowering in fear or being defensive. It's always on the positive. And we need to be addressed. We do address it. But remember, we're not identified as anti-anti-Semites. We're anti-anti-Semitism. But that's not our identity. Our identity is what we stand for, not what we stand against. And what we stand for is bringing godliness, goodness, and kindness into this world for all people. And bringing the gu'ula. Okay. Another question that came up, which is also, well, this is really happening all the time, and it's something I want to speak about, but I'll just begin, because it's a bigger topic, the topic of transgender, but since someone asked the question, I said, you know what, let me get into it, at least initially. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, this past week, yet another OTD person. OTD is not a term I actually like, but people use it, OTD referring to of the derech, meaning somebody forsaking or leaving the the path of Torah and mitzvahs. The reason I don't like the term is because, first of all, who knows what they're leaving and what, what the reasons they're leaving. I understand from a cultural point of view, it looks like they're no longer observant as you understand observance. But we don't know today who's observant, who's not. It's not just an external thing. That's why I just don't like the term. It's a, it's a footnote, but I wanted to just say it to qualify. Yet another person has come out as a trans and transitioning into changing their gender from male to female. That makes close to a dozen of them so far this year. What is it about these OTD men that, make, that takes them in this extreme direction? I suspect it's mental illness. Perhaps they are not happy with themselves and their lives, and instead of making positive changes, they prefer to blame everyone else for their problems. First they blame the community, and then, and then they go OTD. When that doesn't resolve the issue, these issues, they blame their born gender and try to change it. What are your thoughts and what does Torah say on these issues? Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. Oh, that's okay. So this is a topic I have addressed in the past. It's a topic that's becoming, unfortunately, more and more prominent and it needs to be addressed properly. So let me just say a few things here. First of all, as I always do, I read people's comments. I don't try to edit it unless something is really inappropriate or obscene or, or uh, offensive. But this doesn't mean I always agree with the tone. I don't agree with this tone. And I don't say to be critical of whoever wrote it. It comes from a certain cultural, I guess, myopic perspective on things. It, it appears very condescending. It's not the way you'd want to speak to somebody. And anybody going through a challenge has to be approached with sensitivity. Even if you totally are repulsed by the concept of transgender, by, repulsed by anyone who's thinking or contemplating such behavior, such acts to change their gender or behave in a different way than they were born, you have to still know how to address it properly in a sensitive manner. I will not, we, we're not going to diagnose people with mental illness or others. I will say there's no question that a person who's going through this is troubled. There's no, there's no way they aren't. That's exactly what defines. Now, why they're troubled, that needs to be evaluated in an appropriate way. So if you know someone, let's start with that. Let's not just talk about it in the abstract about a third person. If you know someone struggling, struggling with this, if you cannot be the sensitive person to address it, at least to be able to talk to the person 
This does not mean you have to agree what they are coming to, but what they are, the conclusions they're arriving at, but they, they should have a listening ear. You never know. People like this are tortured. It, it, suicide is very much connected as well to this. So we're talking about life and death. So find someone that they can speak to. If anyone has, God forbid, in their family, a child, or an adult, or a friend, or a cousin, the key is to get them someone to speak to. That always begins with that. Without that, who knows what can happen. And it has to be addressed sensitively. Firstly, simply to show you care. The person is going through a struggle. The stereotyping and the stigma doesn't help anyone. Yes, it's easy to laugh at it. It's easy to dismiss it. It's easy to just say they're all crazy. But the problem is that you're dealing with souls here. People are struggling. Now, yes, there is a political side to it. But that's not the person who's struggling. Maybe he's victim to that. Maybe very vulnerable. And that too needs to be addressed. Why are they vulnerable like that? There's no question that those with an agenda, a certain agenda to just eliminate all these gender differences, whatever their agenda is and how they understand life. We do have a Torah. God said how he created human beings, male and female. And that can be addressed. But I don't, I'm specifically not addressing the philosophical side of it right now because I want to first address the sensitive aspect of it. Then, someone who's informed and someone who knows the Torah approach and has a chassidish warmth and sensitivity, those things coupled together can help somebody. Now, what the help is, is case by case. I'm not going to go into now what are the interventions necessary. I just want to establish a critical component that everyone listening to this, and please share it with others, it's vital that we talk to people in this fashion, anyone. If someone came to you and they said they're struggling with some other matter, they're overeating, or they're struggling with, with life itself, or bullying. What is the first thing we do? We show sensitivity. We show love. It doesn't matter what they're struggling with. Who are we to judge? How do we know what they're going through? And let's, say, let's even say it's full of distortions. But why are they susceptible to those distortions? Why are they more vulnerable? There's always something going on. And it's critical that we not doesn't just mean murder. It means any situation where a person is struggling we have to be there for them. That, to me, is the bottom line I wanted to emphasize here. We'll talk more about this topic in the broader sense of it and the whole issues of it. I actually read, or at least summed up, a letter from the Rebbe to someone who wrote to the Rebbe about changing gender. And as I said, there's much to say on the topic. But the most, the most important thing is what I wanted to convey is the sensitivity to the issue. And before we come, run to judgment, first is show love, show care, show concern. Find someone to find the person, someone to speak to, instead of just being stigmatized and, and isolated, and in a lonely way and blacklisted or just excommunicated. Okay. Okay. With that, let's go. Um, let's see here. A lot of questions. I just want to go in the proper order here. I want to go back to the topic, since we're already on the topic of sexual identity and so on, let's also address the issue of abuse. So this has been going on for over a month, five, six weeks already, and I keep getting more and more comments on it, and I just felt I need to go through this and not just ignore it, even though we've addressed the topic many times. So I want to do another follow-up to the issue of uh, the abuse scandal that broke a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, there's not only one. And just continue the, the conversation on the topic and read a few more questions that came in on this. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I want to thank you and commend you for taking an important stance against abuse, especially at a time when a different respected rabbi in the community notoriously told people who were molested to just get over it. It's not so simple, and in many cases it's not easy to just get over it. I want to share an incident that happened to me and how it still affects me adversely 40 years later. When I was 11 years old, my parents sent me to a sleepaway summer camp. One day when I was walking alone in the woods near the baseball field, an older staff member saw me and put his hand around my neck and held me against a tree and forced me to touch his private area. I should give ample warning that this is... Uh, 
viewer or listener advisor advisor listener uh, uh, advised what's the warning they say <laughs> that this is uh, that be advised that this is we're talking some things that are a little explicit here so if you have children listening maybe a good time that you may not want them to hear this section I initially refused to do it and then he started choking me and said he would kill me and I was scared so I did it even though at that age I didn't really understand what sexuality was I did know I was violated and wronged. The moment he let go of my neck, I immediately ran back to my bunkhouse and told my counselor what happened. I even showed him the red and purple marks on my neck where the guy choked me. To my shock and disbelief, instead of helping me and getting this guy in trouble and kicking him out of the camp, my counselor gave me a stern lecture about Loshan Hara, which is speaking evil about another, and how I was doing a big Avera sin and I, couldn't, and I shouldn't repeat the story. Later that afternoon, I saw the head counselor and told him. And his response was similar, and he didn't help me, but instead gave me a lecture about Loshan Hara and that Hashem would be angry at me for telling Loshan Hara. So afterwards, I decided to take the matter into my own hands because the staff wasn't helping me. In hindsight, I understand that I, what I did next was immature, but as an 11 year old, without a full comprehension of how the world operates, and without other choices, I decided I would publicly embarrass the guy who violated me. The next morning during breakfast, as this guy walked past my table, I stood up and shouted in front of the entire camp. Hey, do you want me to feel, and I, wanna, I don't want to read the details, like you forced me to do yesterday by the baseball field. I saw him turn red. He was humiliated in, humiliated in front of the entire camp. He tried to laugh it off with his friends and said, ha ha, look at, it, at this crazy kid. But I knew I was getting under his skin. So a few hours later, at lunch, when he walked into the dining room, I shouted it out again. And at dinner that night, I did it again. And the next day, the camp director called my parents and told them I was a danger to the camp and I was being kicked out and they should come pick me up. My dad had to fly to the camp from where he was and rented a car at the airport to get to the camp and brought me home. And by the way, the staff member that violated me was not fired and nobody considered him a danger to the camp. Looking back as an adult... I understand why the counselors didn't take action and bury the story. They didn't want a scandal. If they reported it to the authorities, it probably would have started an investigation, and perhaps the government would have found other unrelated things that weren't so kosher at the camp and would have caused problems. It might have, been also, it might, it might have also been written about in the newspaper, and imagine the tremendous chil Hashem, desecration of God's name, it, could have, it would have caused. But this is what occurred because of the camp's inaction. Seven, seven years later, I was leaving shul after davening, and I saw the guy who violated me years earlier. I asked my friends if they know his name. One of my friends said his name, and that they know of him from California, and that he had a bad reputation for improperly, improperly touching boys. I was told a story about this guy harmed a child in the, in the city by forcing by forcing himself on him. And the child was so traumatized by the incident, he had to be institutionalized. And a few years later, that victim from the city committed suicide. In my case, I am still affected by my counselor and head counselor not helping me and instead making fun of me. It's expressed by a fear I still have of interacting with authority figures. Some things in life that are easy for everyone else to do, I have a hard time with. So many times in my life I let my driver's license expire because I was afraid the agent at the DMV, who was an authority figure, would humiliate me. Many times I didn't apply for good jobs because I was afraid the boss, who was an authority figure, would make fun of me. I lived with my friends, with my, I'm sorry, I lived with my parents until I was 31 because I was afraid of interacting with a landlord and so many more examples but you get the idea. I also didn't get married until much later in life because I was afraid of being in a relationship because I was afraid of intimacy because not only was it not taught properly to me in yeshiva, but it was introduced to me as a child through violence. I also feel the camp took me seriously in 1982. And when I, when I was victimized, perhaps the community could have forced the perpetrator into counseling or even had him arrested and that would have prevented more victims. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for standing up for the victims. It's too late for the boy in 
the city I mentioned who committed suicide. But a complete communal change of policy can prevent future victims and future tragedies. Perhaps at the first day of school or camp every year during orientation, the principal should include a short speech saying nobody is allowed to touch your private areas. And if someone tries to touch you improperly, here's the phone number to call to report it. Perhaps a sign with similar language and a phone number should be in the hallway of every yeshiva. Yeshivas should also have a social worker available every day during school, and any kid can walk into their office to report an abuse or even to sit down and talk about any issue that is bothering them. Teachers should have to take a special training course because this semester, before the semester begins in order to recognize the signs that a child is being abused in cases that a child is still, still too afraid to come forward on their own. Our community sends mitzvah tanks all over the city to inspire people to do mitzvahs. Hopefully we can do more to prevent abuses and counsel victims of past abuses before things get more out of control. And we need to buy, we need buy a new mitzvah tank just dedicated to stopping abuse that drives past every yeshiva and announces on a loudspeaker phone numbers to call to report abuse or to request counseling. May Hashem bless us that we are successful and no new cases of abuse occur and that anyone who has, was abused in the past can get the help they need and be able to heal without being made fun of or stigmatized negatively. Okay, it speaks for itself, and you see why I read the whole thing at length. This is not one story, unfortunately, an isolated story. The good news is that things have moved since 1982. It's far, far from where it should be. But we need to be able to speak about it. We need to demand zero tolerance and prosecute anyone that perpetrates anything. It should be a tremendous deterrence, not just the humiliation, but actually criminal action. This is criminal, as we discussed many times. It's sole murder, period. And there's no two ways about it. And we, make sure the inst- and we have to make sure the institutions, the schools, the yeshivas, the camps, everywhere possible, zero tolerance, whatever is necessary. We're talking about neshamas here. We're talking about generations. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about building families. So everything you've said, I completely second and just captures again the tragedy of this, this cancer of our times. Okay. And again, many more questions on this topic, but I said I'll do each, I'll, I'll slowly cover them all. I will cover them because I think it's a critical topic. It's the, one of the greatest challenges of our times. And as I always say, and I say it again, Everything we do in life is overshadowed if we don't protect our children, the innocent, vulnerable, defenseless children, because that's our future. That is the number one mandate that we have. And that's why it's so critical to address, and that's what I will keep doing until we ultimately eradicate this cancer completely. Now, someone who is a perpetrator Besides knowing that you'll be watched and you will be caught and we will do whatever possible to prosecute you, go for help. You have an issue, go for help. Stop make, minimizing it. Stop thinking you're just going to be covered up. It won't be. Go for help. And you could save lives and save yourself. That's what I wanted to say right now in this regard. Okay. So we deal with that, with that. Okay, another thing which is completely unrelated, but I want to address it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, on Monday afternoon, there were two shooting murders in broad daylight on Empire Boulevard, an hour apart. With crime and murders so out of control in our shkuna, what can we do about it? What, has the, what advice has the Rebbe given us to stay safe living here in Crown Heights? Additionally, should Kahanim preemptively evacuate the area and leave Crown Heights because their simple act of walking to the supermarket or to shul creates a risk of coming in contact with a dead body because a murder can happen in the streets at any moment. Well, that's a, a strange addition, if I may say. This is my own comment. Let's first talk about the safety. I mean, the kahanim, that to me is like a minor thing we're dealing with. You're dealing here with how can we be safe. But the kahanim, I mean, everywhere in the world we know today is it's considered a place where there's too much mess. So I don't really want to address that. It's not so relevant here. No, that moving out of Crown Heights and where exactly is a place that's completely like Ruach HaTuma Avim in We don't have that situation. Not here and not in Israel. So that's not the solution to move out of Crown Heights. But regardless, the Rebbe did address it. First of all, the Rebbe never believed in running away. Both psychologically, emotionally, and also halachically. The long talks that the Rebbe gave back in 1969, Pesach, 
Quran Heights was going through a crisis then. There was crime, there was murder, and there was a major exodus. The Rebbe came out strongly against it and said, by running, you actually put more people in danger. So to stand strong. Now, obviously, we have to do everything possible. You have to if Shomrim and Shmira and all kinds of different organizations and volunteers, and God bless them all for standing on the front lines and be there ready. We have to do everything possible that is in defense and protection of our neighborhood and community. And not just the Kronites, everywhere. So we have to commend those that have done it. Is it enough? Listen, it's almost impossible 24-7 to be at every corner and every street. We have to demand from law enforcement more protection and more protection and do everything. And there are many activists that are doing that as well. Unfortunately, is it again, it's not airtight. And, and there are plenty of cracks, especially recently, with a more liberal attitude of allowing certain crimes. So there's no, there's no question that it has to be an unequivocal and absolute, again, zero tolerance of any type of crime. On a positive end, we can't just live in fear. So besides putting up mezuzahs and everything, which goes in addition to the prudence of locking your doors and protecting everything possible today with cameras, there are a lot more ability to, to pre- prevent and also catch criminals and perpetrators. But we also have to increase in our own confidence, in our own teir and mitzvahs, in our betochen and trust in God. That's in addition to everything that I've said. When Yaakov prepared to meet Esau, it was on all levels. He davened, he prayed to God, he prepared a bribe to appease him, and he prepared for war. So it's not one end, not just one aspect. We have to do everything possible. But let's not minimize the power of betochen. We cannot be sitting and trembling in fear. Obviously, we have to be prudent and practical when we go out at night, when the children, and so on. But at the same time, our attitude has to be with our children. No, we're not just fearful and trembling, but we are believers in, in the Eberstadt. We believe, Crown Heights, the Rebbe said, there's brachas, and we see it. Look how Crown Heights has changed. It's nothing close. When I was growing up in the 60s, I don't want to make comparisons. Even one murder, even one crime, even any type of crime is, un- is not tolerable. Should not be tolerated. And it's too much. But it's important to also put things into context. And we have to join together. You see something, report it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just isolate ourselves. We are one and we're stronger when we're united in that way. Okay. Let's deal with one more topic, and then we'll deal with Chassidus' question. How to resolve a disagreement between spouses? So two questions in this regard, very different, but they're in the same uh, field, same category. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my wife is so paranoid and afraid of COVID that she takes a rapid test before and after walking the dog in our backyard and we don't even have a dog. All jokes aside, her attitude is adversely affecting our quality of life. She constantly cancels social events last minute because she says yesterday she sneezed so she might have COVID and doesn't want to risk spreading it. I can't force her to go to social events. That's her choice. But when I go to Shul on Shabbos, which is my favorite thing to do all week, she makes me feel guilty afterwards as if I'm the root of all evil by not taking COVID seriously. As a matter of fact, I do take it seriously. I was vaccinated. I wear a mask in public and always wash my hands. Other than that, I refuse to cower in fear and not live my life. I feel I'm not doing anything wrong and her attitude is to hide under a rock. I don't think Hashem wants us to hide in a cave. The purpose of creation is for us to do our best under the circumstances and do much, so much Torah as mitzvahs, to do as much Torah and mitzvahs as possible. What can I tell my wife, at least, to, at least to have her stop chastising me every five minutes and calling me a diseased vector? As I await your answer, I'll probably be wiping down my computer with Lysol wipes so she doesn't accuse me of bringing COVID into the house via an email. Okay, I'm glad you have a little sense of humor as well. But um, the answer is, I, I'm assuming this is an accurate description, not exaggerated. But regardless, this is not the first time I've heard the question, so I know it's a real issue. Look, let me respond both, firstly, as a Jew and as a chassid, because 
at the end of the day, COVID has driven many people bonkers one way or the other, one extreme or the other. As Jews and as Torah people, and especially as Chassidim, we have a Torah, and we have a Betochen in God. Now, obviously, we have to do everything possible to be careful and to, uh, and to prevent and to go to a doctor to get any remedy. COVID has created a lot of complications because there's so many different opinions. It's been politicized. It's been caused to become a polarizing force in so many different ways. And you don't, this one says this and this one says that. That's why we have a Torah and we have Rabbonim and we have doctors. As I've repeated many times. So do it in consultation and in cooperation of Amashpia and your doctor or doctors if you need more than one opinion or two out of three opinions and follow that and the rest is betochen in God. This is the general approach. Now the truth is everybody in the world can learn from this. Even if a person is not someone following halacha, the logic of it makes so much sense. God created us all. Yes, there are illnesses, diseases, viruses, and he showed ways of how you deal with it. He gave us methods. Told us, go to a doctor. Go to experts. And rabbis will help support that and will direct us as well in that direction. This is something that can give everybody peace of mind. Then there are things that are beyond our power. You know, you can go to a doctor about anything and it may not work. Or may work to some extent. So we have to, and we have to pray as well, like I said before, every possible approach. That's the general attitude that can help every person on this earth. I can tell you, I've just said it so many times on Zooms and on conferences and, and, and calls and, uh, and, uh, and uh, presentations in the last two years, since March 2020, and it's really helped people. And as again, people who may not even be Jewish. It's an approach to life where there are challenges, but don't let the challenge shape you and define you. Act, act responsibly, and so on. Now, as far as your wife goes, I'm assuming since you're talking about you're both uh, a Chassidish couple, a Jewish couple, I don't know what's driving her. Is this part of a Torah approach? Would she respond to that if she was standing in front of the rab- a rabbi or in front of the Rebbe and the Rebbe would give her certain guidance? Would she follow it or would she think she's smarter? So I would take that approach. I wouldn't take an approach of husband versus wife, you had, that your wife is being OCD or extreme and you are not. Because then it becomes a personal thing and then who's right? This one said, that one said. I would take much more of a, a, a approach that you're on her side, but let's approach it from a Torah approach and how the Torah describes it. Now, it could very well be that this is reflective of her whole psychological demeanor and attitude and even pathology. I don't know. I don't know the details. But I would approach it in that context, and if she does need some support or help, and even therapy perhaps, I wouldn't say that. What's the matter with you? Let's go to a doctor. But in some gentle and kind way, you could say, listen, we love each other. Let's find ways to deal with this. Now, the way you're describing could also be something that's not rational. So rational conversation won't help. That's why it's hard for me to talk more about it because I don't know you two. I don't know the dynamics. Is there a person, a third party that you and your wife can go speak to? That I would try to mitigate it that way by trying to address it in a very impersonal way, not make it a battle, a supportive way. That's the only way that I think this really can help be resolved. Okay, with that, let us just conclude now with the Chassidus question. And the Chassidus question is in chapter 25 of Tanya. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for your week. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for your weekly broadcast. I gain so much from it every single week. We just learned this week in Tanya chapter 25 that the Chachomim instituted the Brach of Shemin Esrei Slach Lonu. For the sin of neglecting Torah study. Yes, three times a day for the sin of neglecting Torah study. The Alter Rebbe then says that this bracha is like the Tamid in the Beis Amikdash, which, which forgave. I was wondering if that was the case, then why would the Siddur also contain the recital of the Tamid in the Karbonus section before Pesukah de Zimra, meaning in the Bichas Hashach in the morning before we start Pesukah de Zimra. Isn't that repetitive then? Thank you for any insight that can shed that you can shed on this question, call Tuv, may, may you continue with much success in hastening the coming of Mashiach. So if you look at the Tanya and the Rebbe's explanation on chapter 25, he also, he, the Rebbe explains, and the different commentaries, you can look in Tanya Muvueres and other places, 
They explain why was it placed idafke in Shemanesri, in the davening. Why, if it's a forgiveness for this, why can't you say, say something that would be represent the carbon tamid for the sin of ne- neglecting Torah, stuff, bitl Torah, elsewhere? She explains because tefillah is also connected to mid and tiknum, and tefillah also has, brings the oila that in addition to having a prayer for forgiveness is also a prayer for appeasing God. So before you ask for forgiveness, or afterwards, well, before, you like warm it up by bringing a gift, so to speak. Carbon Eila. And that's why Davkin Shemanesra. Now based on that, you can explain that that is the main place. The fact that we say the carbon Tamid in the Karbonus is in general, because in general davening is connected to Tamid. Yes, it also has the element of forgiveness. But it's not that focus, especially three times a day. We don't say carbonus three times a day. The three times a day that the Altar Rebbe is talking about, Dafkin Shemanesa, which is the ultimate, the epitome of prayer. So it's the epitome of really getting the forgiveness we need. In addition, it doesn't hurt to say it another time in the morning, which in general covers the whole Tamid, everything about that offering, the, the regular daily, the two daily, the daily offering of the Tamid, which is the general concept of prayers in general. Okay. With that, let us conclude. Everyone should have a very, very happy other continuing growth toward the 60 days. More simcha, more joy, more joy and celebration. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 391. Every Sunday we're here, 8 to 9 p.m. Be blessed and only simcha to the simcha sagu'ula amitiz v'ashlema. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.